Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, and we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Paul Nyhaus, is undertaking a radical experiment. His organization, Give Directly, wants to find out what would happen if people living in extreme poverty were offered the guarantee of a basic income for 10 to 15 years. They plan on launching an experiment in East Africa in which 6,000 people would be given, with no strings attached, enough money to pay for their basic needs over a long period of time. The idea they seek to test is called the universal basic income, and there are some communities around the world that offer this in some form, but never before has this idea been tested over an extended period of time in the developing world. GiveDirectly announced this new experiment a few weeks ago, and it's caught the attention and the imagination of the international development community and those of us in the media who follow these things, and I'm very glad to have Paul on the show to explain directly what they hope to accomplish with this experiment, how it'll actually work, and what implications it has for the global effort to combat extreme poverty. If you are new to the show, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archive, subscribe on iTunes, get the app, get in touch with me, hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. If you have a suggestion of a topic I should cover or an individual I should interview, you can also contact me through the website. And now here is Paul Nyhaus of Give Directly. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, so you know, I think we are doing something that hasn't um, been done before, um, which is to rigorously test a sort of true universal basic income. Um, and when I say sort of a true universal basic income, to me that that has a few components. I think universal, obviously, within some reasonably well-defined community, um, enough to meet basic needs, and then also kind of crucially long-term, um, so that we're not just running it for a couple of years, but actually guaranteeing people's security for you know what we're aiming for a decade, two decades, um, 10, 15 years. Um, and then in terms of the evaluation, you know, I think we feel like it's critical that it be rigorous um, and scientific. And to us, that means that it should be experimental, um, meaning that there's an experimental treatment and control group so that we get unbiased estimates of the impacts. Um, again, that it should be a long-term evaluation so we track how people's lives are evolving um, for a lengthy period of time. Um, and, and so I think when you look at those elements, um, while there have been a number of pilots in different places, which I think have been pretty informative, there hasn't actually been an evaluation that has had all of those. Um, and we do feel like that's an important gap, just kind of given how active debate is right now. You know, the Swiss are actually going to vote in a month or so on whether they want to make this the law of the land. Um, a number of other countries are debating whether to do it. And so, you know, we don't want those debates happening in an evidence vacuum. Um, and so the idea is there has been some promising uh, initial results from a variety of different experiments, but none that's as comprehensive as, as what you're proposing. 
Yeah, and I think in particular, you know, there there are some that have been non-experimental. There have been some where they run it for a couple of years. But, you know, with, with a basic income, a lot of the key questions people have are around what are the impacts of that long-term guarantee, right? So we're not really interested anymore in the question of if we give people a bit of money right now, are they going to blow it on booze? Or are they going to, you know, shut down, stop working? I think those questions have been largely answered. But we do want to know, you know, if I know now that in a decade from now, you know, I'm going to have enough to eat. Um, do I behave differently? Um, and, you know, critics would say that I might work less. Um, proponents would say that I might take more risk. You know, I might try migrating to a city or I might try to start a business because I know I have that security. Um, but the answer to that question, we don't yet have. Um, so can you maybe walk me through uh, what this experiment will look like? Uh, you said that it's going to be rigorous and it's going to be uh, sort of scientifically, it's going to use basically the scientific method, right? Can you use random control trials to test uh, the premise of uh, universal basic income? Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe just to step back first, in terms, you know, on evidence, I think um, th- this is an important piece of context, you know, that, that for a very long time in uh, development, um, as we studied kind of international development and poverty relief, we weren't doing these kinds of experiments at all. Um, and we didn't start doing them until sort of about a decade, 15 years or so ago, and they really started to kick off on a large scale. And so, you know, there's context here of a whole bunch of evidence showing that cash transfers work really well. Um, from those experimental trials are better than I think most of the old stereotypes would have predicted. Um, we talked briefly about bringing, there's been a, a World Bank review kind of showing that across a whole bunch of these RCTs, we don't see people um, uh, more likely to drink um, or smoke because of receiving transfers. Um, we're worried that people might stop working. Um, MIT review of seven different RCTs in seven different countries that systematically isn't seeing evidence of people working less. So these RCTs, these randomized controlled trials, um, have really kind of shifted our understanding of the impacts that cash transfers have. Um, in this specific context, I think, you know, what we want this to look like is a bunch of villages chosen at random um, in which everybody in that community um, is guaranteed a basic income that's enough to meet their most basic needs um, for the next 10 to 15 years. And we're not talking here about, you know, kind of people moving to five or $10 per day standard of living. We're talking about um, probably about $1.50 at purchasing power parity. So enough to get you into the range of sort of international poverty lines, but not much, not much above that. So just the very, very basics. And so how do you pick the communities in which this is going to be experimented in and the communities that are going to be control, uh, controls in this experiment? Yeah, it's, and you know, you want to be working in areas where, um, where we have, you know, some hope of political stability and we think that we'll be able to run this experiment for 10 to 15 years. Um, we want to be working in areas where we're working with an extremely poor population. Um, and then within those areas, it is just an experiment. You know, we pick some villages um, and not others uh, by lottery. Um, I think that, um, in my mind, that's actually in some ways the fairest way to run a project like this because we know that we're not going to be able to reach every poor village that we'd like to. Um, and so in some ways, actually giving everybody at least the same ex-ante ex- chance of being in the treatment group, um, it gives everybody a shot. And you expect this to be in East Africa, right? I know in writing right. you, said, you said Kenya before, but basically East Africa generally is what you're looking for. Kenya is one place where we've worked a lot. I think we'll discuss it with the government there and with other folks. I think that would be an attractive place to do it. But um, we're also working in Uganda and Rwanda, so um, so TBD. Currently, Give Directly does this on on smaller scales, right? I mean, not in in, in perhaps an experiment and a trial, but what has Give Directly's experience been in just like the mechanics of transferring cash to extremely poor people living presumably in like rural settings in in the developing world? Yeah, those mechanics are really one of the main reasons that we started Give Directly in the first place. I think 
when uh, Michael, my co-founder, and I were in grad school and the other co-founders and sort of looked at what was happening in the world, um, I think one big trend was the emergence of this body of experimental evidence showing that cash transfers were more effective than most people would have guessed. Uh, but the other was the spread of last-mile payments technologies like M-Pesa in Kenya um, or others in other places that were connecting us digitally to the poorest people on the planet in a way that just wasn't true before. Um, and so those rails, those payment rails, um, have improved dramatically in the last decade. And I think that's the other big part of the story, that from a logistical perspective, we will soon be in a world in which we could pay anybody anywhere safely. And so when we think about the way we spend money to fight poverty, I think we should be planning for that world. Um, so you're looking for, right, you're trying to raise $30 million uh, for an experiment that would include about 6,000 people. Is that right? That's right. Um, so if this works, um, and I, I guess we'll know in 10 to 15 years when the experiment wraps up, but if this is successful, and I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm sort of... Uh, on the um, optimistic side of things, I'm a proponent. You know, I've spoken to like Chris Blattman on this podcast, who's done some of these sort of trials before and in various academic settings. And I, I you know, and I've, I've followed your work at Give Directly. So it seems that this thing really does have like a fighting chance of being pretty revolutionary. Um, but like, how scalable is it though? I mean, currently there's something of what, like 1.2 billion dollar billion people who are living on less than a dollar a day. Um, how um, you know, is this kind of process scalable in a way that can like make meaningful, you know, macroeconomic changes over time? Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say one small thing first, by the way, I think we'll actually learn a lot from this much sooner than 10 to 15 years. Um, and it's a subtle point, but the point is that in some ways, what we want to know is, is your behavior this year or next year different because you know you have that decade long or multi-decade guarantee? Um, so knowing that in 10 years from now, if the thing that I try now doesn't pan out, I'll still have some kind of safety net. I might be willing to start a business or move to Nairobi and look for a job there um, or, or not. Right. We don't know. But I, I think we'll actually get very important policy relevant results in the first few years um, of the evaluation. Um, that, that, that's one thing. I think to the broader point about scalability, it, it's a critical question. And that, that's why I brought up the point about payments technology. I think cash transfers are probably not just the most scalable, but the most scaled thing in development right now. Um, DFID estimated a few years back, I think, that even then there were somewhere between 750 million and a billion people in the emerging markets receiving some kind of cash transfer from their governments, um, whether that's a cash for work program or a pension or an unconditional cash transfer, whatever it is. So this is already something we do at scale. Um, I think we tend to neglect the scale question when we look at some of the more complex things that we might like to try. There are lots of things that work really well when they're done at a small scale by an NGO, but um, governments are going to look at that and say, you know, look, like it's hard enough for us to get the basics, cash, food, to people. Um, we need to stick to something that's very simple and that can be done at a grand scale. Um, and cash transfers are demonstrably something that are already being done at a grand scale. Um so what are some of the big challenges that you expect in, in rolling out this experiment? Like what, what's stopping you from like launching it tomorrow? Like what, what are you trying to, to, what kind of hurdles are you trying to overcome right now? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the first and the biggest is obviously funding it, you know, so we've committed 10 million in funding that we had already um, raised to it. Um, and I think that for this thing to be at the level of rigor and scale that we think it ought to be done at, we need another 20. And so if, if people put that money in, it'll happen. And if they don't, it won't. Um, so that's the first obvious one. I think there, there's been a second set of interesting logistical challenges and planning challenges that come up when you plan something like this over the course of decades. Um, there's thinking about what happens if there's, you know, if there's, uh, if there's a civil war in the country and we're working, kind of how do we plan for that? 
Um, how do you plan for inflation, you know, differences in the value of a dollar and a shilling in 10 years, um, all those kinds of things. So there are a number of these interesting logistical challenges that we have to deal with as well. Um, but I think that the, the funding is the first one. You know, if, if people want this to happen, it will happen. Um, and if they don't, it won't. Uh, what if... Um the sort of almost ethical or, or moral dilemma that this thing actually does show extreme promise early on. I mean, in medical trials, for example, um, if a drug, if, if a trial is working really, really well and it's sort of an emergency setting, they will um, sort of end the trial early and put all the people on the control uh, on the drug. Um, in this case, I mean, do you have any potential, any expectation that the control group might get the, the funding if these... Um, if if the the results are are extremely promising, yeah, you know I think that if um, if there were funding available, then that would be a very doable thing. Um, I think that the constraint will be, let's say that in three years we have really strong initial results, um, then people are going to have to sit down and have hard conversations about whether we want to put more money into this. Um, so unlike a, a clinical trial where the kind of marginal cost of providing the treatment to the control group might be very low or zero, um, here you know the goal is to provoke a really tough conversation about resource allocation. Um, and I think if people wanted to allocate more money to a control group or to other similar groups, um, you know, we'd be thrilled to do that. But um, that won't happen quickly because, you know, the way we do foreign aid has stayed largely the same for the last 50, 60 years. Um, so, again, if this thing is is a success, um, what are there any like downsides that even proponents acknowledge from these sorts of programs in terms of like how, you know, the social structures of communities might change uh, in the face of this sort of exogenous, you know, you know, fairy godmother giving, you know, money every every month. I mean, what sort of of negative effects might this have even uh that that even people who support this idea um acknowledge? Yeah, I think you know, there's a set of things that that people typically worry about and I should say that, you know, I myself and I think we as give directly don't have a strong bet that this is the right way to spend money. In fact, we're, we're running this test because we think there is real uncertainty um, and a need to kind of generate rigorous evidence on these questions. So um, I don't, you know, I don't think we would be stunned to see some of these things happen. But the kinds of things that people worry about are um, you do worry about whether people will shift the way they use their time and kind of work less. Um, people, I think people actually don't worry as much about the kind of community cohesion point because um, one of the core tenets of this UBI philosophy or theory is that it should be universal within some defined community. So, you know, for us, it will be universal within villages. So everybody in the village will get the same money. But um, it's also true that because something like that hasn't been tried before, we don't really know what that will do to the social dynamics within a village. And, and that's kind of the point of the test. Um, I think proponents have, a, have an optimistic view, but we don't know if those things are actually going to happen yet. Um, I think, you know, there are some people who still have the concerns about substance abuse. Will people just use the money to buy alcohol, tobacco, things like that? Um, those, quite frankly, I think have been really systematically addressed now by over a decade's worth of RCTs from other cash transfer programs that, if anything, um, have found people reducing their expenditure on alcohol and tobacco when they receive cash transfers. So those, I personally think, are unlikely. Um, to, to materialize, but that is something that you hear from a lot of people. Now, how does the method of cash transfer, as like perhaps like a lump sum once a year or mm -hmm. or monthly payments, affect um, people's spending decisions? Yeah, this is a, a fascinating design choice and something that I think gets far too little discussion. Um, you know, for context, globally, those hundred billion or so people, or sorry, one billion or so people I mentioned who are getting some form of cash transfer, you know, the bulk of that is small monthly or bi-monthly payments. Um, and what's fascinating is in some early work that we've done at GiveDirectly with behavioral economists, 
um, at Ideas42, um, where we've given people the option of structuring the transfers however they want. Um, we've seen that nobody really wants 12 small monthly payments. Um, most people would like their payments structured in a few larger tranches. And when you talk to them about why, they'll say it's because there's a certain asset that I want to purchase. I'd like to receive a transfer that's at least this big. Um, uh, but then I also don't want to get too much at any one time because I might be tempted to misuse it or my relatives will try to get the money from me. So um, people have a real sophisticated way of thinking about the best way to get money. And um, that isn't really reflected in the way we currently design social programs. So one thing that we want to do in this experiment is test um, the value of giving people some flexibility like that, potentially saying, you know, you can decide if you want to get this quarterly, monthly. Um, tell us what works best for you. Um, so if uh, you are seeing results, like how should this change how development experts think about fighting extreme poverty? So I, I think that there, you know, the headline numbers on this are really striking, right? So if you take a look at estimates of the global poverty gap, right, how much would it take to get everyone who's below the global poverty line up to that line? Um, folks at, uh, at Brookings estimate that that's at about probably $65 billion a year right now, which is uh, about half, right, half of what we spend every year on official development assistance globally. So there is a mathematical sense in which extreme poverty is very eliminatable if we solve the logistical challenges and decided that we wanted to spend budget in that way. Um, I think that, you know, any individual country in the emerging markets, you know, most of them aren't going to have the resources to fund the full universal basic income right off the bat. Um, but I think it should provoke discussion of, you know, whether some um, incremental version of that is doable. And then for us as aid donors, I think there's a real discussion when you look at those numbers um, of whether we actually don't want to consider a much simpler approach to ending extreme poverty. Um, and, and the idea is that, you know, most of the hardest to reach people in the world are people living in rural settings, uh, are subsistence farmers, um, generally in sub-Saharan Africa, but also in, in you know, Asia as well. Um, and the idea is that, you know, that, that these programs could potentially be replicated to reach that group, like the hardest to reach group. That, that's right. With the one caveat I'd add that I think that um, increasingly we're seeing the kind of poorest and most vulnerable people concentrated um, in, in failed states and areas where um, governance is collapsed or isn't functional. Um, and that is a unique challenge that I don't think we're going to address directly. Um, with the universal basic income. That's interesting. So, so I had Raj Shah on the program uh, a few months ago, a couple months ago, and that what he told me like was his kind of main challenge, main main sort of uh, research project going forward is figuring out how to do development in conflict settings. Uh, and you know, I, I guess you know the, the World Food Program they have like a, a form of these kind of cashless food vouchers that operate in um, these kind of settings. So I wonder why this project wouldn't be sort of scalable in, in uh, conflict settings? You know, I think it's a question, you know, of uh, there's just the, the direct question of finance. Um, if you don't have a government that's functional, then there's no government to finance these things. Um, I think that as, as donors, we can absolutely do things like that. Um, I think one of the big challenges that the WFP and other organizations like that working in these tough settings face is that um, there is just a lot more um, political backing from the ultimate check writers from um, the U.S. Congress or others. Um, for things that at least superficially seem like we can ensure that people only use this to buy food. Um, so, you know, if we give people sacks of rice, there's unlikely to be a negative story that comes out of, you know, this sack of rice ended up financing terrorism, um, and we worry a lot more about cash transfers. Um, so I think uh, making sure that the standards and the audibility and the kind of data trail are kind of up to par 
um, to build confidence in our ability to deliver cash transfers in those tough settings um, is really a top priority. And um, you may know uh, my co-founder and I also founded a technology company, Segovia, um, which is building a lot of the infrastructure for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned at the outset that you are looking for an extra now $20 million to fund uh, the experiment in East Africa. Are you raising that from individuals as well? I mean, is there a way that listeners can can help out if they're so inclined to want to help fund this experiment? Yeah, that would be wonderful. Um, GiveDirectly.org and anyone who's listening can ha- help make this happen if you think it should. Um, I think we're off to a good start. So we announced a couple of weeks back and have raised about $2.5 million so far against that goal of additional 20. So um, good start, but a long way to go. Um, and again, I, you know, I think what's exciting about this, and you know, for me personally, I'm, I'm donating to it. My wife and I are giving. I think um, what I find exciting about it is that worst case scenario, we think we'll probably put about 90 cents of each dollar into the hands of very poor people. Um, and we know enough from what we've done in the past that that's going to have some positive impacts and improve their lives. But, but again, the best case scenario is we provoke a really fundamental rethink in the way we spend uh, foreign assistance. Awesome, Paul. Well, this is exciting. I mean, this is getting a lot of buzz in the development uh, community. So I was very glad to be able to speak to you and, and hear directly from you about the contours of this experiment and what you're trying to hope to, to do with it. So thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was interesting. Really excited to see where this ends up. I, I really get jazzed up about randomized control trials and in international development. They're always fun, intellectually interesting, but also have the potential to make a profound impact on the world. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.